We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Big Blue Banter, the answer to all your Giants matters. From run game to coaching to Bob Shepard's timbre. Hosted by Dan Schneier, analysis on fire. A Giants fan since day one, now preaching to the choir. Joined by Nick Filato, breakdowns with bravado. Passing you the facts like he passes on gelato. From just outside New York, a couple football dorks. A killer podcast when Dan says receiver corpse. They do the play-by-play, dropping almost every day. These experts know the X and O's just like Danny O'Shea. They do the review of the All-22, dissecting every throw. OCU Minora lit up in Venora when he was a guest on the show. So there you have it, a podcast for Giants fans who are rabid, who can't wait for Sundays, the NFC East, the Fantasy League standings. We'll see you back here. It's Big Blue Banter. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host, Nick Filato. I don't quite know why I'm so excited. I guess it's because a whole day, me and Nick... Bringing our heads together like hands. I don't even know what the term is. I'm so like beat from just a long day. First of all, Tuesday is my longest day for my actual job. It's where all of our content comes in. We had like 15 budgeted items. So I was grinding that through to like 3, 4, 5 p.m. in that range. And then I was like trying to get my hands on this All-22. So I'm excited now that we got our hands on All-22. I shouldn't be that excited because it wasn't that fun to watch, I guess. I think the Giants will be better moving forward. I'm going to say that from the start. I said it today on Twitter. I think the Giants will win against the Washington football team this Tuesday. I'm sorry, this Thursday. I think Nick agrees with that as well, but I'll get his thoughts on that. I talked to him off pod. But I don't think this specific All-22 is something that we came away from, or at least I came away from, more positive than what we felt after Sunday's game. I certainly don't feel more positive, but I think a lot of it was game plan specific. I think a lot of it was Pat Shermer doing a hell of a job. And on the flip side, Vic Fangio doing a hell of a job. And at the same time, though, there are talent issues on this Giants football team that reared their ugly head in this game. And we're going to talk about all that. But tonight, we're going to talk about the offense. So before we do that, I want to give a little quick primer for those of you who are new to the Big Blue Bander podcast. Whether you joined us during draft season or during free agency or more recently, during the season, we have a pretty set schedule. 
After every game, we do a quick reaction podcast. Then we get our hands on this All-22 film, and that has become increasingly difficult. I mean, Nick found a way to get him get him some. He sent it to me. I found a way to get some after Nick. That was later in the night, a different version of this. But right now, Game Pass, which we used to use, and we've used in the past, for every game before this, until this one, and it used to be open to the public, too. You could buy NFL Game Pass and get the All-22 Coaches film. It's down. I mean, it's not offering coaches film, so we had to get lucky to get it. But every Tuesday, we will record, typically, tonight might be different, but typically we record a podcast breaking down the offense on All-22 with the coaches film and a podcast breaking down the defense, All-22 coaches film. So that's the reaction pod after the game, then dropping usually Wednesday a.m., but we're probably just going to drop it right away at this point. It doesn't really matter um, if it's at the night or the a.m. The All-22 podcast, one for the offense, one for the defense. Maybe during the week we'll do a preview of the next game, interviews with uh, you know beat writers from other teams, but these are the three you can count on every week, and this is the crux of what we are. For those of you new to Big Blue Banter, we are a podcast that breaks down the All-22 coaches film, that sees it from that angle with all 22 players breaking down the x's and o's in addition to the analytics in addition to the roster building stuff and the overall you know fan stuff that both me and nick have this is what we are so i'm excited to get into our first all 22 breakdown of the season nick how are you doing tonight not all heroes wear capes dan and the people who reached out to me on twitter regarding the all 22 and giving me access to it thank you very much for doing so and I'm doing well tonight. I was very pleased to get the L22, dug into it for hours, and just eager and ready to do this podcast with you, my friend. Yeah, me too, man. I love doing the offense too because you get that second angle. You get the first All-22 angle where you can see kind of how the defense is moving after the snap, how the offense is moving before the snap, where the routes are breaking, what's open. But then you get that second angle where you can really hone in on the offensive line and the run game, and I love that angle. So I love doing the offense because I really get a chance to watch every single play from both those angles, focusing on different things, the offensive line from that second angle and kind of the routes and the receivers from that first angle and obviously the quarterback play as well. So it's always exciting for me to do the offense. This year, we're going to do things a little bit differently. In addition to breaking down um, the, the entire you know offense from the All-22 film, we'll break it down into sections. We're going to go series by series with plays or developments or anything that stood out by series. And then we're going to have categories for each episode. We're going to have the, under, the unheralded player of the week on the film, on the coach's film, both offense and defense, the, un, the best throw on film from the quarterback, the best route run, the film play call of the week. So the play call we like the most from the offensive coordinator. And then finally, we're also going to break down the offensive line and give them a grade pass blocking and run blocking and explain that on a scale of one to 10 with decimals. And on the flip side, once we get to the defense, we'll go over that next, but unheralded player coach call of the week from Patrick Graham, defensive player who struggled. We want to get into that and we could do that on offense too, by the way, Nick, I didn't write that in, but we can go over that as well. So let's do that as well. Um, if you have one off the top of your head. And then the best individual defensive play of the week that kind of fits in with some of the other ones we have on offense. So we'll wrap that up at the end. So stay tuned for that. But let's kick this bad boy off with the first series by the Giants. My first takeaway on this first series, Nick, and then let's get to some of yours is hell of a throw by Daniel Jones on the offsides. Now, I wish Nick watching this play over and over that he'd just be a little bit more decisive on other plays that aren't offsides. Like great job by Jones to draw the defender offsides. Great rip. I mean, he put a lot into that throw, but that ball 
got out there with a ni- on a nice line. He throws a really tall ball, Jones. That's one of that's one thing I really like about him. That's why when I was originally kind of comparing him like total ceiling to a Ryan Tannehill type, it's a lot to do with that release points really high. Ball gets out there, and that ball dropped right over the top to Darius Slayton. It wasn't the most 100% perfect throw. 100% perfect throw has a little bit more air under it so it can lead Slayton for the touchdown, but it's pretty damn close, and that ball rips out there. The only thing I'm going to say is the game moves so fast, Nick, and I kind of wish that it doesn't take always in offsides for Jones to just kind of hit that back foot and let a ball rip out there to some of those vertical routes that you know may not seem completely open after the snap or before the snap, but actually are good one-on-one, you know, chances for him to go one-on-one, especially if he gets rid of that ball quickly. What did you take away from that play? And give us something else that you thought uh, was a key takeaway from that first Giants offensive series. On that one play though, I mean, yes, there was the offsides, which gives Daniel Jones the ability to know that he can take a shot. But if you look at the safeties, and how they rotate down, specifically the field side safety, the side that Darius Slayton was on. He drops down to about the 40-yard line just before the snap. And Daniel Jones picks his head up, looks to his left, sees the one safety kind of cheating back to a center field look, symbolizing that it's going to be single coverage for Darius Slayton. And then once the offsides happen, he knows he has that. And that is one hell of a throw, man. You said it well. He steps up into the pocket, has a clean platform, steps into his throw. You could see his hips snap as he rears back and just puts this right into Darius Slayton's hands. And I kind of wish, I mean, I'm not going to knock Slayton for this, but I wish Slayton didn't go down just by getting his feet basically touched in this situation. But that's still a decisive uh, call by by Daniel Jones on this play because he does see that safety roll down and he knows that he has that single matchup. I mean, yes, I would like to see that a little bit more, but I thought the felt the opening script was um interesting, I guess you could say. I mean, I liked the opening play, the 21 personnel uh, orbit motion with Sterling Shepard going around Saquon Barkley, and then you have Elijah Penny in the backside guard lead blocking for Saquon Barkley on a power gap play. And I felt like Will Hernandez made good contact on the end man on the line of scrimmage, drove him into the deck. Elijah Penny cleared out, but uh, there was just not enough room because Kareem Jackson, who was one of the better run support safeties for somebody as old as he is, flew in and nailed Saquon Barkley right in his <laughs> surgically repaired knee. And Barkley got up. And I felt like overall, and I want to get your take on this before I continue on with what else I liked and did not like from the opening script, I felt like Saquon Barkley was maybe a little hesitant, missed a couple holes in this game. I mean, it wasn't egregious, but I did feel like he didn't probably bail his run blocking out as much as maybe he could have. And it's something that we've criticized him for in the past. Did you get that at all in the all 22? Without a doubt, Nick, I did not think this was a particularly good game for Saquon Barkley. I'm willing to, you know, cash it up to yeah, <laughs> chalk okay. it up to, I should say to he's a little hesitant in his first game back. Hopefully it's something that changes the pass protection, which we'll get to was not good from Saquon Barkley. The pass protection has been bad his entire career. We were promised a gold jacket player. Well, gold jacket players are great in every asset when it comes to the running back position. If you're a gold jacket running back, somebody who's worth taking it to overall in any draft class, you got to be great as a receiver. You got to be great as a route runner. You got to be great as a pass blocker as well, in addition to a running back. So that wasn't there, hasn't been there. Had some really bad reps in pass pro, which we might get to. But as far as what you just said, yeah, I thought two things. One, 
I actually thought that that design of their run play on the first play of the game was their best run design in the entire game. Loved it. And it might have been their most successful run of the game. It was a game with very few successful runs. But there were other opportunities for Barkley. There was a pitch play I will get to in a bit where, honestly, I thought Barkley should have planted his leg and, and, we'll, and we'll get to this and driven back vertically into the defense, uh, back not kind of around the defense, but into it. And that was a, the case on a lot of these runs for Barkley. Uh, I definitely thought he was hesitant. It wasn't a good game for him. I wanted to get your take on something else in this game, Nick, because if we do end up getting to uh, the the worst individual player in this game or the player who struggled the most on all 22, my pick's going to be Kyle Rudolph, man. There was a play on that first drive where you look at the Tony play and everyone's like, why is Von Miller... Um, just completely unblocked getting to Kadarius Tony, And that's a drive killer. I mean, it's a terrible call from Garrett. He brings Tony on the field. It's completely obvious that he's going to use him for that regard. The best thing Garrett could have done there by tipping his hat off by bringing Tony on the field was use that knowledge and run a fake and fake the ball to Tony and then put move the and have the play designed to go in the complete opposite direction of where Tony moves post-snap. Instead, gave it to Tony. Miller gets in there. But Rudolph, I mean, what a hilariously bad job he does here. I guess chipping Von Miller and then getting to the next level. I don't really even understand this. Maybe you can go over this, Nick. Is this is how the play is designed and taught? Like, why is Rudolph trying to why does not the right tackle come down there and Rudolph uh, take the man the right tackle I mean I see the two tackles here are kind of in a pass blocking post snap they're looking like they're pass blocking which is by design I guess to kind of trick up the defense but um, and you know have them read different keys but asking Rudolph to come down there and chip and then get to the next level it's a lot to ask and he does a really bad job of it. It is a lot to ask, and I'm pretty sure he expected Nate Solder to help him here because Will Hernandez had a three technique over his outside shoulder, and on this type of play, Will Hernandez can step play side and handle that three technique, and then you can have Nate Solder kind of kick out to take away Von Miller because this is a just a one of those touch passes that have been become more prevalent in the NFL, and it was a total drive killer. You're right, but it looks like Kyle Rudolph he sets outside of Von Miller looking like he's expecting there to be inside help as he has to go and release to take the uh, the second uh, the, the second level defenders there. So to me, it looks like he expected help. There could have been a miscommunication there. You never want to leave Von Miller essentially unblocked, which is exactly what ended up happening here. And it was, as you said, a drive killer. But I would not be shocked here if, if this was a, some sort of miscommunication. And I don't think that was a pure blocking attempt by Kyle Rudolph. So I don't really want to crucify him. Uh, for that because it does appear like he expected uh, Solder's help. But I wanted to circle back to that first play to, to kind of tip my cap to another tight end, and that's Caden Smith. And you're right. I think this was one of the uh, better play designs in terms of running the football from Jason Garrett because you have the fullback coming in to eliminate the linebacker. You have the backside guard pulling to take all, out the unblocked defender who's coming off the outside hip of Caden Smith. And Caden Smith does such a damn good job here, hitting the outside hip of Andrew Thomas's assignment. And that turns him, and that allows Andrew Thomas to flip his hips and basically seal that defender who is like a four technique, maybe a four eye technique. And then as he does that, he quickly transitions and climbs up to Josie Jewell and eliminates him from the play. This could have been a big running play if Kareem Jackson wasn't so decisive coming downhill into the alley, but Caden Smith continues to impress. And I felt like that was a pretty impressive block. And then on that, the, ne the very next play, Dan, it was a very Jason Garrett type of play call where it was a wasn't necessary. It was kind of a stack to the boundary, a little bit off of a stack with um, 
pretty big separation between Kyle Rudolph and Darius Slayton, and then two receivers to the uh, top of the screen to the field. And what'd you get? You got a slant flat and a stick flat. Oh, is that Jason Garrett, bro? Yeah, it is. And ultimately, I mean, Jason Garrett, there's a lot of things that went into why the Giants lost this game. On film, this game was a lot closer than it ended up being because in just about every single turning point, the Gi- it went wrong for the Giants. But some of these were self-inflicted wounds. We talked on the reaction podcast about what Jason Garrett did from a play calling standpoint after Logan Ryan forced that fumble, recovered it, a key turning point. Well, let's talk about what he did after the Giants created that big play on the first drive to Darius Slayton to get close into range. They're close to field goal range at that point, but not quite there. He comes out and he has what we just talked about. He tries that play with Kadarius Tony. It doesn't get there. What does he do on second and long? He sees a six-man box, and yet somehow... against this six-man box, the Broncos get a free man to the running back because what I thought, and you could tell me if this is wrong, but again, pretty bad blocking here from Kyle Rudolph. I know he's expected to come down. He's uh, he's detached from the block, free to the linebacker, but why not have Solder block down in this regard? Or Again, expecting a lot out of Rudolph, but either way, why are you running a draw here on second and long? There are so many plays in the playbook when it's second and long. And you could even see this based on the leverage of where the corners and where the safeties for the Broncos are lined up before the snap. There are so many plays in any playbook where you can get 10 yards passing the ball here when the corners are that deep off the line, uh, off the ball and the safeties as well. And yet you're running a draw play and yet somehow, boom, there's a free man to the running back from the Broncos. Unbelievably poor execution here on what is already a bad play call to set the Giants up for third and long. And that ultimately bogs down with a you know, just a bad play here. Um, we can get to that. I don't think it's the only thing I want to get to there. There's one thing actually I want to get to there. So before I get to that, let's talk about the second and long. Yeah, the second and long, that that play call right there is to get into the field goal range. That That's what's in his mind or to get into some sort of just to get some yards back because they were essentially in field goal range and got themselves out of field goal range. So that's why they called that play. Side note, I feel like Devontae Booker lost his footing at least two or three times in this game, and that kind of happened on this snap. I don't really blame Kyle Rudolph at all here. I mean, he gets to Josie Jewell's outside shoulder and, and puts a block there. What, what ends up happening is you have a, I guess you could say, a, a two techniques shaded towards a two-eye to the play side, and then you have a three technique outside of the outside shoulder on the backside of Shane Lemieux. And Nick Gates is on, in the bubble, essentially. So what I mean by he's over the bubble is he has a basically a free release up to the linebacker. So he basically releases up to the linebacker. And what happens is Will Hernandez's assignment, that two technique, two eye shade, goes inside, basically replacing Nick Gates, which creates a pick because Shane Lemieux's three technique then kind of loops around him right into the rushing hole and is basically unblocked. It's a tough block for Shane Lemieux there. You want him to kind of get his hands on this defender and hold him into place and not allow him to separate. But since Will Hernandez was beat inside pretty poorly, that created the pick. So Shane Lemieux can never get to his looping defender by the time he was in Devontae Booker's hole. But if that defender's not there and Devontae Booker keeps his feet, I mean, we're looking at maybe, maybe a five-yard game here because you have... Justin Simmons kind of coming down into the hole, and that's kind of contingent on Nate Solder holding his block against Von Miller, which didn't seem like it was necessarily going to happen on the play. But I think Jason Garrett ran that play conservative in nature. We know how he is, just to kind of get them back into a manageable field goal range. Yeah, and even that, all those contingencies just to maybe get five yards, there's a lot of plays in the playbook in my mind, and I've seen a lot of teams run them where you can get 10 yards, even stay, even run a stick concept there. The safeties are playing so far off the ball and so over the corners, so... 
I just didn't like that. Third and long, nothing too crazy here. Not a great throw, not a great play design. It's okay. It's hard to convert this. But what I did notice on this play, I wanted to see if you saw this, Nick. I thought Will Hernandez and Nate Solder got beat pretty easily by the stunt on this third down. Yeah, they did. They definitely did. And you're right. The the play design, it just seemed like it was run to the sticks and turn around. And hopefully you can get an advantage on the cornerback. Again, it's, it's very unimaginative. It's very Jason Garrett-like. But that stunt, you're right. I mean, Will Hernandez seems to transition the uh, his original assignment to Nate Solder well, but then he allows the looper, who was, I believe, Von Miller, to kind of undercut him. And he kind of looks like he's just caught flat-footed there and doesn't really flip his hips on time. Will Hernandez didn't really... I mean, I don't know. He had some snaps that I felt like, okay. And it's this is, again... like. I feel like Will Hernandez has been his entire career where he has some snaps where he doesn't do anything bad. He, he holds his own. He shows that he can be an average to maybe even slightly above average guard, but then he gets beat like three times a game. Now, it's not like Shane Lemieux. I'm not suggesting that it is, but there were a couple plays in this game where I saw him get tossed to the ground and just kind of lean into his blocks too much and kind of look somewhat lethargic. And, and, it, and it, it's a little frustrating when I, I feel like that's how I did described his 2019 play was lethargic and I saw a couple plays this one in particular as well where kind of resembled that as well I could completely I could not possibly agree more with you in this one if you're looking for a breakout game this is not the game or Will Hernandez breakout game this is not it I mean he wasn't bad he had some really good reps and had some really bad reps though too it's not what you want I mean it's not there we thought I thought maybe he could come out firing Nick and just be the player that he looked like he was evolving into in 2018. Right now, after one game, that hasn't happened yet. I don't think it's easy playing next to Solder and Parrot right now, but I don't think that's the reason why. There are some one-on-one blocks here that he just did not execute well, both in the run game and the pass game. Ultimately, this is not what you should be getting out of the 34th overall pick on the interior offensive line. If you take a tackle at 34 overall, this might be okay. This might be passable. You might be able to live with it. But when you go the interior offensive line, and I believe he was the second interior offensive lineman off the board in that 2018 class, it's just, you just, if you get this far and he's playing like this, it's just another miss for the GM. It's just simply cannot be argued as anything else. And we hope that he can get to a certain level this year, but I'm losing my faith here fast, Nick, that he's going to ever be this great guard for the Giants. Yeah, I think great is a stretch. My hope for Will Hernandez is he's a slightly above average starter that you can rely on and won't be a liability. And I think that's well within his wheelhouse. I really do. But these just little inconsistencies and these lapses in technique are something that I've seen basically since his rookie season. And his rookie season was probably his best year. This is only one game, so this could definitely be corrected. We know he lost weight in the offseason and he switched to another position and he's you know reportedly healthy from the COVID. He could have had maybe long-term COVID effects from last season. But there were just those certain plays, man. And I wish that the All-22 allowed us to have timestamps. It doesn't, unfortunately, everybody... Yeah, it's very, very frustrating, but there was a couple plays in the run game where I saw him just get tossed to the ground, and there was also maybe a, a play or two at, in pass protection. But other than that, it was solid. So I do not do not want to act like Dan and I are overreacting, but I think we are both lockstep here that, we, that he leaves some to be desired. Yeah, and so just for those of you who are new to the podcast, 
We normally will have, if Gamecast cooperates this season at any point, we'll have timestamps on every play so you can follow along if you guys have purchased Game Pass for yourself and want to watch the coaches film. We'll give you timestamps. It helps us go over plays anyway. It helps keep us on track. In this one, that's just not the case. The film that we have to work with, I don't have a single timestamp on my notes because it's it's just not, I just have a, it's not the video I got. There's no timestamps. I don't have down or distance on any of these either. I had to kind of follow along and track like manually because <laughs> writing it down on a piece of paper, just kind of guessing the yardsticks. It was, it was a mess, but <laughs> just so you know, uh, moving forward, we will hopefully be able to deliver that. Let's move on to the second series. So the first series wraps up with looks like a minimum field goal. All of a sudden we're punting the ball. Giants get the ball back on the second series. And we start off with the play that I was talking about earlier, Nick, <coughs> excuse me, pitch out right. And I really feel like Saquon here was pitter pattering and he, and then kind of just like, Falls forward, which was okay. I like that he kind of like dove forward for an extra two yards here. Ended up like a three-yard gain. But, man, the way that that was blocked up, at least from my vantage point, I want to hear if you think this. I think that if he planted his right foot in the dirt and then shot vertically back toward a little bit vertically with a little bit of a slant, I guess I would say, toward the line of scrimmage into that hole, he could have turned this into a play, man. I mean, one more cut then. If he shoots vertically, then plants off his left and goes straight off of that. With his tackle-breaking skills, at least if it's the old Saquon, and that build, built momentum and speed from shooting vertically and from planting off his right foot, I thought this could have been maybe an 8, 10, 12-yard gain, potentially. I like play calls like this, to be honest. You pull the play side tackle. You pull the center because he's uncovered. Will Hernandez, can, this is a pin-pull concept, power gap concept. You can have Will Hernandez pin that two technique, and then you can have both of these guys kick into space. So you have two big dudes rumbling into space, and we know Nick Gates really succeeded with that last season. Then you can have Kyle Rudolph and Kenny Galladay kind of cut off all of those other defenders. And then you have... Two, like I said, those two big guys in space and Saquon Barkley, and you're right, man. If he planted his foot, you could see him kind of pitter-pattering, seeing if he there's a cutback lane that's going to materialize. But if he planted his foot and kind of ran off the ass of Nate Solder here a little bit, and he, there's like three times in the play where he kind of shortens his steps, and then he starts to accelerate, and then he shortens his steps again. I think he probably could have picked up a couple extra yards. I don't think it would have went too too long because, uh, because there were other defenders in the area. But you're right. It just seems like there's some indecisiveness there I do appreciate seeing those types of play calls we saw them a lot against Cincinnati last year in week 12 and then a couple more times down the stretch of the season uh you know one play call that we didn't see at all in this game Dan was the counter play that was like the staple of Jason Garrett's offense last year we didn't see that once I thought that was odd too. I wonder if that was matchup based based on kind of the fronts Denver's shown do you think that had anything to do with it what do you think was the reason behind this I was wondering if it was something to do with Saquon Barkley, if it was something to do with the fact that they didn't have that many healthy bodies at tight tight end. I, I wasn't right. really 100% certain because I saw counter be run against similar fronts that Denver employed. Maybe it's just Jason Garrett didn't feel it was necessary to utilize counter, which is somewhat of a deceptive type of running play. And they feel like they have Saquon Barkley so they can kind of go with just more, um, hey, we're going to run the football. Here we are. I mean, not that he's not going to want to try to be deceptive against the defense. He obviously will, but it was a little uh, strange to to not see it. And it also could have just been because of the game plan because there was an extensive period of time where the Giants offense did not have the football, which was annoying from a film perspective, to be honest. Very annoying from a film perspective. Also feel felt very 
like deja vu. I remember there was at least one or two games we broke down on film last year where something very similar happened where the Giants defense, and it, it wasn't really all fault of the Giants defense. Part of the fault is the offense, the offense going three and out. Like this drive, this second series was a three and out. Um, and sometimes when you continue to go three and out, it puts the defense more stress on the defense to continue making plays to stay off the field. Um, this series had a couple, I have a couple more observations, even though it was a three and out second down play call. Love this play design. When I talk throughout the last year, throughout the past three years about letting the passing game be an extension of the run game, instead of just running the ball up the middle into stacked boxes or trying to run the ball when it's just not successful due to your blocking, use the passing game as an extension of the run game. This is exactly it. This play design is great. I hope they run this more is that quick pass out to Tony with a couple blockers ahead of him. He was only four yards this one, but with Kadarius Tony and what he's put on film at the collegiate level, his ability after the catch, his explosiveness, his yards after contact upside, his contact balance, run these plays a lot because this can get you a minimum in my mind of four yards. Very rarely it's going to go worse and sometimes it can go more. This is better in most situations to me than a run call. I love this call. This is actually one of my favorite calls in this game. So what happens is the Broncos are in a two high defense here and the Giants initially align in a three by two set. The number two receivers, Kadarius Tony and Daniel Jones motions him back into the backfield or into the backfield. I should say right next to him on the boundary side, which is the opposite side of where he came from. And then they utilize a quick motion around Daniel Jones's ass and they utilize Kadarius Tony as a fast three. So this is what a fast, this would be called a fast three. And what I mean by that is after the snap, you have your number one receiver, who's your outside receiver, and then your number two receiver, who is Caden Smith. And now you have a third receiver coming into the fray, which is Kadarius Tony, who is motioning, running with momentum as a fast three. So those linebackers have to be cognizant of of his presence. And also, depending on the coverage that the Broncos are utilizing, if they're utilizing any kind of man-match type of coverage, employing a fast three could kind of screw up communication issues on the back end. So I really hope to see more play calls like this. Because, yes, it's only a short game here, but this could have been a lot bigger. Kadarius Tony basically gets matched up with two stalk blockers on two defensive backs. So it's, hey, I got to beat Josie Jewell coming from the boundary side to the edge. And he's able to do that. But since it was a two-eye defense, they have another defender who gets to come downhill and assist. And also Darius Slayton didn't throw the best block on Patrick Shatan Jr. But I... I do really, really love this play. I'm glad you realized that too, man. Because you and I, man, I'm, how many times did we talk about like this this type of stuff off podcast and even on podcast? We're like, yo, why don't we use utilize play calls like this? And now we finally see it. So I knew you were gonna love this. Yep, right up my alley. And it's just like. It's a little mind-boggling why they don't go back to this at any point in the game after this. I mean, the guy gets, what, three more snaps the rest of the game, Tony, for no real reason. He didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't his fault the first play where Von Miller kind of shot the gap on a bad side. I just, I don't understand it. This offense was struggling. Why not bring him in for even just for misdirection, but also just to be an extension of the run game? Like you'll see throughout this game in the second half, despite the fact that Jason Garrett found a shit ton of success by passing the ball on first down off a of play action. In the second half, he then resorts to multiple uh, drives in a row where he's running the ball on first down. Don't, I mean, like, come on. Get that out of your mindset. I mean, listen, we have Saquon Barkley. It's fine. But you can also do things where you can run play action to Barkley, throw a screen out to him off of that, throw a swing out to him off of that, let him be the first read, get the ball to Tony. There's so many different ways to use misdirection with Tony to help you out here. But finally, we get to the third down. This is where the Giants go three and out. So here's the question on this play. This one's been talked about a lot. It's the play design where very 
low, per, you know, high percentage, low upside type play. Classic Jason Garrett on third and short. He's trying to get the ball out on this uh, pass to Saquon Barkley. Now, a lot of people have said this is on the offensive line for collapsing from the right side on Jones. This is on Jones for not. Uh, I'm sorry. This is on this. This is on Jones for not getting to a to, off to a different read and holding the ball too long and waiting for it to be open. I actually think this is on Jones for another reason, Nick, and I'm curious your thoughts. From my vantage point, there's enough space from the sideline to Barkley where if Jones throws this ball really quickly, again, it has to be decisive, like kind of like what we saw on the first series with that throw to Slade and just hit your back foot and trust your trust it and throw. If he throws this ball with enough anticipation, he could get this ball out to Barkley, and who knows what happens there because there are no defenders except for, yes, he's guarded pretty tight there, but he also has the full sideline there. So if Jones leads this ball to the sideline there, Barkley catches it, and especially if he catches this ball on his inside, uh, you know, on his out, or let's say his, his if he if he catches, if, if Jones places the ball in a spot where Barkley can flip his hips around and catch it on his inside shoulder, Similar to what we saw from Shepard later in the game where they ran that bunch route and, and Jones threw a ball out there. Shepard was able to kind of flip his hips, catch it, break back inside. If that's able to happen with Barkley on this route, this could be potentially a touchdown in my mind. It's unlikely, but it's in the realm of possibility. Regardless, in my mind, Nick, if he's decisive with this and gets this ball out fast, he has enough space from Barkley to the sideline that this is a catch. And even if he's tackled right away, he's already past the six for a first down. Yeah, I think what happened on this play with Daniel Jones is it took Barkley a little bit to kind of get in and out of his break. And Daniel Jones, if you watch him, he dips his head and looks right at kind of the off the ass of, I believe it is Nick Gates. And it looks like he's about to run. And then right as he does that, Von Miller is basically barreling down. I think he was trying to run on this play because he saw the green grass after Josie Jewell shaded towards the towards the numbers on the field. I, I don't mind the, um, th- these are the types of things that, that we talked about in the, in the quick reaction pod where there, where there's one like defined look, one defined um, read about the play like that. I feel like Daniel Jones kind of gets locked on and with the wheel route, we definitely um, saw that later in the game. I don't mind this play design on the boundary side. I think the field side was um, not as great because you just basically have, a little option out type route and then a little hitch and then a slot fade that was covered really easily. But if you look towards the boundary, Jacob Barkley he motions to a tight stack off of Kyle Rudolph's ass. And what that does is it allows Barkley to run off the ass of Kyle Rudolph, who kind of angles his stem outward, creating a pick from the covering defender on Saquon Barkley while also engaging basically the inside shoulder of Patrick Sertan. And this is a route that Vic Fangio had success against Darnay Holmes on. It's a similar type of concept with Jerry Judy a little bit later in the game, only Kyle Rudolph doesn't really necessarily get the rub on the defender and the coverage is pretty good. But at the end of the day here, I I think I'm going to put it on the protection. I mean, yes, Daniel Jones could have fired it out, but the timing is, is, is so small for him to get rid of that football. And if you look at what ends up happening, I mean, Nate Solder gets bench pressed and Will Hernandez also gets beat on this play. I mean, I think he does, Will Hernandez does a better job anchoring down a little bit, but then once the defender works towards his inside shoulder, he just gets pushed back and Daniel Jones can't really do anything. But I think Jones's first read here was to bail once he saw the green grass. If you look the all 22, you see his eyes kind of go right off the ass of Andrew Thomas it is, and then Shane Lemieux. But then by that time, he's basically getting hit. 
Yeah, I can see it. I mean, listen, it's not an easy throw to make. I think it I don't think it's 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 potentially not even in his arsenal, to be completely honest with you. Like that might be a throw where with Jones's level of arm talent, that ball's getting undercut and intercepted for six for the other team. But I've seen Justin Herbert rip that exact ball in, mostly in the red zone, with that amount of space and just get that out and just rip that ball out there. Just put it with accuracy with placement and most importantly with the velocity needed there was in my mind a good amount of space there but I guess I can see what you're saying it's not it's definitely a risky throw to make especially for Jones um so I'm fine with it also because Saquon Barkley's route was slowed down a little bit by Kyle Rudolph's release because he had to basically use Rudolph as a shield and in doing so his 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 ability to get in and out of that break was kind of slowed down a little bit. I feel like if that happened a little bit quicker, then maybe uh, Daniel Jones would have had a, a better window to, to fit that into. Sure. Ultimately, doesn't bogs down. Here comes the punt. Now let's break down the third series of the game where the Giants scored touchdown. Then we're going to do a couple more series that stood out. We're not going to get every single series in, especially not the garbage time ones. Then we're going to go back over the categories we said, unheralded player, on film, the throw of the week, the best individual route run, coaches film, play call. And some of these we'll go over already in depth, so we'll just name them. Grades for the offensive line as pass blocking and run blocking. Then we're going to go over just some rapid fire, Nick. We're going to finish with rapid fire takes about players or concepts or anything on film. I got a few interested to bounce off of you, so we'll finish with that. But before we do all of that, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Giants football is finally back, and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find New York Giants tickets anymore. Because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only one you'll ever need as your go-to for all NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all those awful service fees that the other sites charge which lets them guarantee the best prices on all their NFL tickets. Don't believe it? If you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. That's right. You guys ever want to just go and see Saquon Barkley hit a 60-yard run? You know I do. Daniel Jones, fine Sterling Shepard, Kenny Galladay, Darius Slayton deep. Well, if you guys want to see that live, please go and visit TickPick. .com and use the promo code BANTER. That's tickpick.com slash banter. If you use that today, you can save $10 on your first order of the Giants tickets that you desire. Please check that out. It's tickpick.com slash banter. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Nick. Third series of the game. Giants take a lead on this series to go up 7-3. Lead they would no longer, uh, or from that point on, that not have. It was their only lead of the game, unfortunately. But it was a great drop. And it starts off with Garrett doing something I thought he did a much better job of in this game until the second half, which is still so mind-boggling to me. We'll get to that. Of doing, and that's throwing the ball on first down. Throw the ball on first down, please. Just throw the damn ball on first down and use play action. You have Saquon Barkley. You have the, you know, you're Jason Garrett. Everyone's expecting you to run. Throw the ball. And so he does that. Really nice shot there on the play action pass to Galladay. I thought that was interesting. I thought the Giants did a good job running a screen, trying to get the screen game involved, but it was a bad timing for it. It was second down, and the Broncos only blitzed four. So they had seven in coverage. They completely snuffed it out. It went nowhere. Finally, the Giants get bailed out in my mind by what I thought was an iffy pass interference call. But again, it's a one high safety look here from the Broncos. And yet Garrett is running four routes turning at the sticks. Why are you using a route combination four routes at the sticks when you're facing a one high safety? I just will never understand that. You could so easily high low. How could you not like? If you run a half-field high-low concept there, how does that not win every time to me? Or how does that give you a better chance to win? And not only win, but create like a 16- to 20-yard play rather than a four-yard play. So any thoughts on those first set of downs that led to a first down by penalty? I'm a, I was a fan of the first and 10 play action. It's something that I feel like Jason Garrett does in a solid manner, but that's usually when he utilizes play action is always on first down, which, I mean, makes sense from a from a football standpoint. It was a dig curl, uh, seven-man protection with both tight ends staying in to ensure that Daniel Jones didn't get killed. Saquon Barkley leaked into the flat, and Kenny Galladay did a good job getting in and out of his break and making a, a, a nice catch. And then you get this split zone type of run from uh, from the Giants, and it was a little bit different from what we saw a lot last year. Now they're incorporating their tight ends, only it's not that counterplay. Instead, Kyle Rudolph comes from the play side to the backside to kind of block Von Miller in a split zone type of run. And if you look at the blocking on this play, man, I mean, number 99 on Denver, I don't have his name right now, but he bench presses Will Hernandez just way into like the backfield and just throws him aside. Like this was another really bad Will Hernandez rep right here where, I mean, Saquon Barkley had nowhere to run on this play because Will Hernandez was basically getting pushed behind Nick Gates, who also didn't do a great job with his block. He kind of missed Josie Jewell at the second level, leaned a little bit too much. So, uh, I mean, that wasn't necessarily a a great sequence of plays right there. And then the, the halfback screen though, I felt like, well, that that wasn't a good play. This one also, sequence-wise, I like the setup of the halfback screen, mainly because you have you know, a two-by-two two set. You have Saquon Barkley right next to Daniel Jones to the field side, and then you use Kenny Galladay in motion, get him right behind Sterling Shepard, formulating a stack. You hike the ball, and then you have Kenny Galladay running a drag. That's going to draw attention. And then you have Sterling Shepard running some sort of – it, it, I mean, he cut his route off to to basically go block because the design play was obviously to Saquon Barkley. But I like the fact that they utilized Kenny Galladay as a distraction there. It just seemed like it took Daniel Jones maybe a step too long and just the play in general to to develop, allowing these, these linemen to realize it was a screen because Will Hernandez had 
already kicked out in the space to block before Daniel Jones released the football. And I think that might be on Daniel Jones more so than Will Hernandez. He screens got to be quick. So by the time Saquon Barkley has the football, he has that great juke inside, but 99's right in his face and then a bunch of defenders corral him. I just think that play needs to be sped up a little bit. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you also hope like when you're running that play that they're going to blitz or they're going to send at least one extra guy against the screen. Mm -hmm. But but I'm with you on that. I'd like to run more of that, man. The screen game needs to be a part of this offense. You have Saquon Barkley, run those middle screens even, get him cutting, get him on the inside. I mean, this just has to be part of their offense. We went a whole game where we didn't see any arrow routes from Barkley. We didn't see any Texas routes. We didn't see any of the stuff we talked about there, with the exception of that one design route from in the red zone where he's going into triple coverage and Daniel Jones just stares him down and should have been intercepted. With the exception of that, there weren't really any design reads for Barkley in the passing game or one-on-one routes against linebackers that I saw that, you know, we want to see more from, but I'll take it. I'll take a screen here. Yeah. I will say that. that, that. That three by one um, play that you were referencing that got the DPI, which was kind of flaky. It wasn't really that bad of a DPI. And those are the kind of play calls, though, man. I mean, it's quick game, and it's just you have double slants with with Kyle Rudolph as the number three receiver running a spot route. Basically, the double slants just turn into spot type of routes at the sticks, and they're every receiver just has people draped all over them. I mean, I just feel like defensive coordinators are so aware of what Jason Garrett tries to do. It just makes him so predictable because you shouldn't have defenders draped all over your receivers, especially when you have the upgrade in receivers, the giants added this off season. I mean, it's not like it's Damian Ratley out there. And I just feel like this happens way too often in these third manageable situations. That's the best way to describe it, Nick. Defensive coordinators are so aware at this point of what Jason Garrett wants to do. I mean, if you could tell an offensive coordinator right now before the season blindly, like not referencing any teams, any any whatever players, that when you run these stick routes or when you run these types of routes at the sticks, defenders are going to be draped all over you, they'd say, all right, well, this is completely unsuccessful. We won't run this. The point of this is, like, that's not the point of these plays. The point of these plays is that you're not always supposed to get these covers. You're supposed to get a, a one One of these reads is going to be open. One of these reads is not going to have a defender draped all over every single receiver. And it's not, like you said, the Damian Ratleys at this point. They have good receivers on the field across the board in this game, with the exception of Kyle Rudolph, who, again, I'm sorry to harp on it, but just didn't look good out there at all in my mind. Um, curious if you think any differently. I, I probably find it. I, I, I'm sure it's doubtful, right? You don't feel differently about that. I don't think he looked good out there. No, I don't think he was maybe as egregious as you, as you are viewing it, but I definitely see a player that didn't impress by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I didn't see a single route from Rudolph where he created separation in this game. Now, I wasn't focused in fully on him on every single route, but on the ones that I was and in the general routes, I mean, I looked at every single one of these. I didn't see any any clear-cut separations. I saw almost every single one of his target had a defender draped him. Now, some of that is Garrett, like you said, but he wasn't getting open. He I don't at, think he's going to be a – he's not going to be a player that's going to create a lot of separation anyways. His way of creating separation is using those subtle push-offs at the top of breaks. I mean, and that, that, that's been his game for the last couple of years anyways. If he can just do that, that, that will make me happy. But I didn't even see a lot of that in this game either. Yeah. And and I will say this, you're right about that. Even with Minnesota last year, some of it is also just those subtle, like you said, the push-offs, also the head fakes and just weird little nuanced, like old man type moves in his route running that I saw with Minnesota. And, yeah. and he's, he's got a little bit of that old man game, but we didn't even really see any of that in this game. Again, it's his first game back off the list, Frank, but at this point to me, I can't wait for Evan Ingram to come back and take some snaps away from Rudolph because... 
especially when they're going 11 personnel, which they should be doing a lot more of with Shepard, Tony, and Galladay. Like, this offense, the predominant personnel grouping, if this offense wants to reach its peak, in my mind, has to be 11 personnel with Kadarius Tony, Sterling Shepard, Kenny Galladay. And in my mind, you can split some of these reps up, but especially on obvious passing downs, Evan Ingram over Rudolph because I'm just not a big fan. And fine, if Rudolph gets back to what he was last year, I'm, I'm a good having him on the field. But I think he, at this point, needs a little bit more time because he's just not looking great out there. But anyway, back to this set of down and this series. We talked about the first set before the... Um, before the before the pass interference. Then we get to a first down situation. I want to get your take on this because this has been a low-key problem in, for Jones, in my opinion, for Daniel Jones. And it's starting to creep up a little bit more each season. It wasn't as much of a problem in his rookie year, I felt, Nick, in 2019 because of the style of routes that Shermer ran with so much mesh and so much of those just like shallow crossing routes that he did a better job of. And he always has done a good job on the shallow crossers of placement and and uh, leading's receiver into spots for good yak. But on other types of routes, so for this example, is the first down flat pass to Booker. This is just an awful ball from Jones. I mean, Booker has to one-hand stab this thing, makes an incredible catch, but it was a good job. by The problem with this play for me is like it was a good job by Jones to get to Booker fast enough to get the ball out there. That's where that ball is supposed to be. I thought he did a good job of progressing to Booker in within that read. He has enough space, but the ball placement is just so bad. And we saw this later in the game on some other routes that, you know, that little stick route to Slayton that some would say Slayton's supposed to catch. That ball died on him. And there were a lot of balls in that short area, that zero to seven yard range that die on the receivers and that kind of drop off. I feel like he kind of more, he kind of tries to place the short throws to me when it's like versus the deep throws that he puts in nicely goes right over the top of his shoulder, drops those in nicely. The intermediate routes, so the touchdown, which we'll get to soon, throws those pretty nicely too. But I feel like on those short routes, he almost tries to place it to the point of like, I'm trying to think if it's like, it doesn't work with tennis. I'm trying to think of an example uh, of another sport where I've done something like this in my own playing career, you know, amateur wise. But that's kind of the best way I can describe it, Nick. I feel like he almost tries to place those short throws. And the accuracy to me is becoming a big problem, the ball placement on those throws. It was not a good throw. I mean, it was lucky to be caught by Booker. And again, I like you said a little bit ago, I, I think he does do a solid job getting off of Kenny Galladay's deep route. I mean, you have a safety in between the numbers and the hash. You have a defender over Kenny Galladay. Kenny Galladay stutters and releases outside, and that safety just drops directly to the numbers. Jones is eyeing that safety down, and then he just quickly goes and he checks down. It doesn't even look like he... He looks at Booker. He just knows Booker's there, which is a good feel for the offense. And maybe that attributes to the bad throw. He like gives a cursor, uh, like a, a little glance at Booker initially. And then, he, and then before he throws the football, I'm guessing he expected maybe Booker to stop, which did not happen. And even if that is the case, which I'm kind of giving Jones the benefit of the doubt there, even if that is the case, Booker still would have had to jump for this ball. It was just a poorly placed ball, which is something, as you stated, Something that he does from time to time. I don't think it's a, a huge problem in his game, but he definitely, uh, this this will crop up every now and again in the short game. Okay, interesting. I, I definitely feel like it is a big problem in his game from, and recently, more recently than anything else, really in this Jason Garrett system specifically. Uh, I saw it a lot of the time last year on those quick slants or even on uh, that were behind the receivers or you know in a spot that got tipped up. A lot of times on the stick routes as well. Um, some of those balls to Ingram. That's somewhere 
timing, but it's really the flat routes where I see it the most. These these little outlets they're running back on. I don't think it's any coincidence Saquon Barkley completely dropped off as a receiver uh, from Eli to Jones. Uh, and to me, this is a big issue in his game. Like to me, he, you can't have this if you're Daniel Jones. You just don't offer enough to have this. So hopefully it improves. A lot of it is system based. I do think because, like I said, it wasn't as much of an issue with Shermer, but just something I noted, and I was curious to get your take on. Also, when it, yeah. Go when ahead. it comes to when it comes to Saquon Barkley uh, and like his lack of receptions without Eli. Eli Manning was a check down machine at the end of his career. Daniel Jones was much more aggressive down the field, it seemed like, in his rookie season. And that's another reason why. I'm not saying that he necessarily excels in that area. I just don't think it's his biggest problem because Jones does have a lot of other things that kind of hold oh. his game back. <laughs> it's I know, I know not his biggest play. problem. I agree with you on that. It's nowhere close to his biggest problem. Um, and, you know, it's not nearly as bad as some of the other aspects of his game. It's just something that sparked up to me, saw it a lot in this game, not just on this throw, and I was just curious if, Again, maybe I overstated a bit at the beginning. I wasn't trying to. I was just saying this was something to me that was not even on my radar as an issue and now has seemingly started to pop onto my radar more. And as I watch more film, I see it more often. So, you know, who knows? Hopefully he'll improve in that regard. A couple other things about this drive before the touchdown. One other thing that stood out to me. Really love the third down call here. And this is something I saw a lot from Pat Shermer on the flip side. These empty sets, five wide. What does it do? It gives the quarterback a nice defined read before the snap that's likely to be there after the snap. And just like in that, just like we saw with Shermer picking up a lot of first downs this way, the Giants found success here when they went, uh, you know, no back, empty set. Shepard gets a one on one here against the 47, a linebacker. Quick in breaking route, easy first down. I honestly think that we saw this a lot with Shermer as well in Jones's rookie season in 2019, going empty. Empty has been really good for Jones. It was good for Jones at Jones at Duke. It was good for Jones with Shermer. It needs to be a bigger part of Jason Garrett's arsenal because with what Jones is right now, and it's not just Jones. I mean, this, this is a great thing for any quarterback to go empty, especially in this situation where, like, you know, you didn't see many tip passes. Jones is a tall quarterback, throws a tall ball. I feel like they should go to empty more often. I love what they did here. I feel like they went to empty a solid amount last year. It was just their personnel groupings. They would do empty out of 12. You know, sometimes they will align empty out of 13 with Levine Toy Lolo in a two point stance. And in, I mean, in this game, they were predominantly in 11 personnel, which, uh, which was probably because they were trailing a lot, but also because of the personnel that they do have. It's just, it wasn't Kadarius Tony that they were relying on. I mean, the third down call though, I mean, I, I love this because you isolate Sterling Shepard against Josie Jewell and you could see that Daniel Jones noticed it pre-snap. Sterling Shepard gives a little outside jab release foot to Josie Jewell and just breaks inside, uses his outside arm to chop the inside arm of Josie Jewell and then crosses his face for a nice little catch to move the chains. I would love to see more of that, but it's it's difficult to to get defenses in this kind of disadvantageous situation where you have a talented slot receiver uh, against a linebacker. I mean, I hope that the Giants are able to do that against Washington on Thursday night football. If it's not Jamin Davis and it's John Bostick and Cole Holcomb, sign me up for that every day of the week because the Giants could really take advantage of that mismatch. Yeah, you're damn right about that. And you're right. They did run a little bit more, but I, to me, when you go to it in 12 and 13, it, it almost defeats the whole purpose. Now you're getting, you know, Caden Smith and Kyle Rudolph are sometimes, you know, a fullback lined up against a linebacker. That's not even really a mismatch in my mind. So you want to get those faster guys out there. Let's break down the touchdown play call because love it. First down, great call. I want you to break down the concepts here, the route combinations from Garrett. 
this is my whole thing. I tweeted about this, Nick. I mean, Jones throws a good ball, a little bit high, but good ball, a lot of velocity, nice rip. Shepard makes a really nice adjustment to pluck it in the air and to control his body to allow himself to kind of re uh, reshift his weight and then get upfield for the touchdown. But love the call here from Garrett. I don't understand what's holding him back from running plays and concepts like this more often with these verticals and the deep over and just concepts that really stretch a defense and challenge them. And like you said, put, and like we've said for throughout the last 10 months, put safeties in conflict. So what do you make of this play? Break it down. I love it. I really do. I mean, the giants come out in 11 personnel, two receivers to the, it's more towards the boundary side, but the ball is not on the hash. And then you have Sterling Shepard in a reduced split, splitting basically the numbers and the hash. And that's important. You have Patrick Sertan with his backside kind of towards the sideline, even though it is man coverage on this play. And I love this because you have the number two receiver, Darius Slayton and Sterling Shepard running two deep horizontal crosses and they basically crisscross each other. And then you have Kenny Galladay acting as a clear out to clear out the entire area for Sterling Shepard to come from the backside to that area. Daniel Jones knows this is going to happen based on the coverage pre-snap. He drops back and then you can see the both the crosses kind of cross each other's face around midfield. Kenny Galladay is bringing the outside cornerback from the boundary side deep. And then you have Patrick Sartan who is kind of in, in um, shaded outside pre-snap. Now well outside of Sterling Shepard because he had an inside release on an inside route with basically nobody there because of the clear out routes. And then even if that route was taken away by the linebacker underneath, then you would have had either Kyle Rudolph or Saquon Barkley for a good seven to eight yard gain. But what happens is Jason Garrett high lows that linebacker. That linebacker is going to look at Saquon Barkley and it looks like it appears to be some sort of man coverage, man match coverage. So he's going to take, dip down, bring the depth of his original alignment down towards Saquon Barkley, which is going to open up even more space for Sterling Shepard, who makes that catch. And then once he makes the catch and beats Sertan, you can see there's no other defender up until right before he gets into the end zone. And that's because of the route combination. So I, I'm pulling my hair out too, Dan, wondering why we don't see more aggressive type of play calls like this. Yep. And it's just, I just don't understand. I, it's like, I get it. You, you know, you're scared. What could happen? It could be a fumble. It could be a turnover. This is what you think about if you're Jason Garrett. You said, you said this offseason, the number one goal is to not turn the football over. But that has, you got to take that out of your mind, man, because there's no point in not turning the ball over in an NFL game. If you're also not moving the ball, and more importantly, you're not scoring points. And you have to know, if you're Jason Garrett, that your offense has struggled in the red zone your entire tenure here. Yes, you didn't have Barkley last year. That's going to help the red zone offense, I hope, once he's back to full health. Yes, you didn't have Galladay and Rudolph. That should also potentially help the red zone offense. But partly, this is Daniel Jones, man. He's not a good, in my mind, to this point in time, he still can be, but he has not been a good red zone quarterback. We'll get to a lot of this later when we get to that red zone series that ultimately ended the game for the Giants when they bogged down in the red zone. But in my mind, one of the biggest issues for Jones in the red zone is his processing. Mental processing is the biggest issue for Jones in general. It's what has held him back and made him... By all means, I mean, if we're being honest about the situation, he's been a bottom 5-10 to 10 quarterback by EPA, by all the advanced stats, by yards per attempt, pure yardage, moving the football, and touchdowns last season. I mean, but that's touchdowns are, you know, very regressive stat. I mean, the first year he had a bunch, the second year he didn't. 
But one of the biggest issues for Jones is processing. And in the red zone, you just don't have extra time. You have so much less time. The processing has to be so much faster. We lost that game last year because he wasn't pro- he didn't wasn't able to process the Deion Lewis route fast enough against the Bucks for that two point conversion. That's an easy throw. That's an easy pitch and catch for the two point conversion. He's a step slow. He was a step slow on the Galladay fourth down call in this game, which we'll get to. That led to the incomplete pass. And his processing is slow in the red zone. The Giants have been unbelievably unsuccessful in the red zone in 2020. The Giants scored the few, the second fewest touchdowns in the red zone. And I always consider this the fewest because the fewest was the Jets with Adam Gase, the worst coordinator coach in history, running an offense that had absolutely nothing, even less than the Giants. So with the exception of what was an expansion-level Jets offense in 2020, the Giants were dead last in red zone touchdowns. So if you know this, you have to factor in as a coach that you have to be more aggressive when you're not in the red zone to try to create plays like this one, this touchdown to Shepard, and the t- play to Slayton before it earlier in the game. You need to factor that into your game plan because you know that when you get to the red zone, you're not a great team down there. So you don't want to have to get to the red zone. You want to score before you get to the red zone. That should be ultimately a big goal for Garrett. And unfortunately to me, it feels like it's the complete opposite, Nick. It's almost, his mindset is completely different than that. It's on the complete opposite spectrum. I know. And this is actually one explosive play that we actually get here. And it was well drawn up by Jason Garrett. I I love another little nuanced thing about this play is the fact that he had Devontae Booker and Caden Smith both chip and release. This is something we talked about a lot during the offseason. How do you help tackles out? You have running backs and tight ends chip and release. Caden Smith chips 48, releases, gets into his route, and he would have been open if if Sterling Shepard was not. Devontae Booker annihilates number 53 on that play, helping uh, Andrew Thomas out. He gets into his route. So I'm hoping to see a little bit more of that. And also just got to give credit to Nick Gates here because he looked for work and he found work, man. He absolutely annihilated number 93. It was pretty cool to see. This would This has to be like the highlight play of the entire game. Like one of the high points where it's yes. just like, wow, the Giants dominated the Broncos. It's just, nah, nah, it was just one play. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. But like, you bring up a great point, Nick. It's almost like a microcosm of what has to happen more often. On these great plays, it's like three or more players doing great things. Booker, Gates, Shepard, four, Jones, Garrett, five, the play caller. Like Smith, Smith too. Smith, six. Like there's... I have so many components here. Like, this is what needs to happen more often for the Giants. Five, six, seven players and coaches making great plays on one or making having a great impact on one individual play. It can't just be one player. That's just not how it goes. Like, hopefully it can be when Barkley's back to full health because he showed that his rookie season. Like, there were some plays. Like, I'm just thinking back to that first Jaguars play that he broke for a touchdown. That was not really. I mean, Shepard helped on that one. But aside from that, there wasn't too much help from the rest of the guys there uh, or the coaches on that one. But, yeah. I mean, it's when that, when those things happen, like you just said, and all those players are making such big impact, great things happen for this offense. It was the highlight play of the game. All right, we get to the fourth series. This was kind of the start of the disaster, the post third series into the fourth, fifth series range, because this was when the Broncos drove all the way down milking clock, just destroying them. And then Logan Ryan makes an incredible play on the ball, strips the ball, gets it back. But the Giants go three and out right away. And then it's another series to the Broncos. This was that long stretch where they kind of took the Giants out of the game. Now, the Giants were still in the game after this. They still were somehow in the game because they didn't give up too many touchdowns in this game on defense. But this was a bad stretch for them. We went over this three and out on the reaction pod. Is there anything you wanted to add from the All-22 from this uh, three and out series by Jason Garrett? I'm crediting this one to Jason Garrett personally. I mean, I just don't think there's 
I'm not even sure Patrick Mahomes is digging out, digging out of this one. If you're you're running the ball into a stacked box on first down with a five man front, there's a five man front and three linebackers, and he just runs it up the middle here when he knows the entire time his offensive line on the interior has not been run blocking well. Okay, you come back out second down, PA fullback flat. The fullback's completely covered. Like even if this isn't a bad ball from Jones, it's a one yard gain. And then oh my god, the tight end out to Rudolph six yards behind the sticks or four yards behind the sticks just it is i mean is there anything to add here good old slant flat and flat stick we all know it guys jason garrett no there's not much to add i mean uh, i would say that uh ben bredesen had a really good recovery against 98 mike purcell who got into his chest and just pushed him right into the backfield but then bredesen was able to kind of like regain himself, hunker down, lower his hips, and then shove Purcell to the ground. I thought that was a solid rep. Matt Parrott got beat inside. Uh, it was kind of more of a sloppy transition between Gates and Parrott, but Parrott needs to kind of get that inside shoulder more towards the midline of the defender to not allow him to kind of get through that B-gap and deliver the initial hit on Devontae Booker. Overall, I mean, it wasn't a great series. It's a tough spot to be in, but it definitely wasn't a great series. No doubt about it. All right, we're running. Uh, we're running. This podcast is running long. We don't want to keep everybody here for Bible length uh, type podcast. So we want to make sure we're cognizant of that. We still have to get to all the things we mentioned before. So let's go a little bit faster through these next series. Um, the next one, a couple things that stand out to me here. Giants down 17-7 at this point. It's obviously the drive where Jones fumbles. I like that they use tempo here to create some to create some offense here. That should be more a big part of it. I liked... Um, the third down play where they have a bunch formation to get a free release for Sterling Shepard, almost a natural pick. Jones rips it out there. Easy pitch and catch. They need to just make this like all the times they run their stupid stick slants, flat crap and curls. Instead, use that sparingly like you're using these bunch formations and use these bunch formations and these vertical and these all vert type routes more often. Make that your main thing and then use your stick less often and you'll find more success with your stick and you'll find more success overall. Like this was an easy pitch and catch for Daniel Jones and Sterling Shepard. The fumble, only thing that stood out to me there was Barkley got completely destroyed in pass production on that play. Like I mentioned earlier, gold jacket prospects are at that position are supposed to be do it all great at everything. And that wasn't, he has not been, he's been very bad at bass production. Uh, I also thought this drive had the only bad rep I saw all game. The only really bad rep from Andrew Thomas. It was actually on what ended up being a nice play by Jones to work back to Slayton. Um, and I'm kind of like a, a, a quick curl route. I want to get your take on that. That was my stand on. The last thing was multiple bad reps from Ben Bredesen. We'll get to him at the end of the pod, but Bredesen, I, I, I wasn't what I was hoping I would see with Ben Bredesen in this game. I, was, I really wanted like a massive upgrade to Shane Lemieux, and I'm kind of left feeling like, eh, Lemieux, Bredesen, not sure it really matters at this point. They're both not playing great at this time. Yeah, Bredesen was playing a little bit too high for me the entire game. His hands were – he really struggled to kind of fit his hands and, and gain the chest of these Denver Broncos receivers. The Broncos just would swat at his hands. His hands would go down. His center of gravity would rise, and then he could get controlled. It wasn't a great start for Ben Bredesen. Uh, I'm, I'm going to reserve my judgment on his overall play uh, in, in terms of kind of ranking him with Shane Lemieux. But yeah, it didn't look great on the all twenty-two. But I did love that one play to Sterling Shepard. Man, it was a bunch where, where they were where they motioned Sterling Shepard from the far side of the field, from the boundary side to the bunch with Kenny or with Darius Slayton and Kyle Rudolph, and then they have Rudolph run vertically, creating a pick, something we talked about before. Slayton runs a drag, and then 
because of that route concept, because of those releases from the bunch and the defense that Denver was in, Sterling Shepard had a free release and he was basically operating from about what, four or five yards off the hash. So he had all the room in the world to make this catch, which the ball could have been placed better by Daniel Jones, to be honest, because Shepard had to turn his hips to catch it. And it was a solid game from Shepard. I really, really liked that play design from Jason Garrett. Hope to see that a little bit more. I like the the little motion aspect in the beginning, which is something we saw a little bit last year from him. He doesn't utilize motion all that creatively, but sometimes he uses it just to uh, set up plays like that. And I wanted to tip my cap. You brought it up before, and I, I appreciated that play. And then the fumble, man, I mean, we, we harped on it before. It's, it's Daniel Jones, bro. I mean, he he, he does these kind of things. It, it's frustrating. Uh, certainly it's frustrating. And he did come back and slide later in the game on a run, which I think we'll see a lot more of moving forward. As far as that Sterling Shepard play, you actually brought up a great point earlier. I kind of tipped my cap in saying like this allowed this this allowed Shepard to kind of cut it back. But thinking about it now, it's actually poor placement by Jones because if he throws that on the outside shoulder, we might see something similar to or it throws it in a place where Shepard can kind of pluck it like he did on his touchdown route. He might be able to cut that up field off near the sideline with a little bit of space and turn that into a really big play. Because but I mean there are there are defensive backs in the area, so I don't know how crazy it would have been, but. Again, not the the third down a little bit later too. I don't know if we touched on this play, the dig to Shepard. I really love this route uh, from Shepard and this throw. I I feel like Jones did a solid job kind of hitting these digs. The one dig, the Kenny Galladay should have probably been an interception. So, you know, sands that one, but the, the route on the third down, a couple plays after the, uh, the bunch play that we were just referring to. I mean, Shepard releases off the line of scrimmage at about the bottom of the numbers and you can tell his stem is outward leaning and he's running. And by the time he reaches the, zero in the 50 he's about a yard off so you could tell he has that lean towards the outside and then he gets to the top of his route sticks his foot in the ground and he quickly gets he quickly turns a 90 degree cut jumps up makes a tough contested catch and then falls down he kind of gets tripped up a little bit but i felt like that was a really good um route and just play by jones and shepherd because jones hits his back foot is able to step into the pocket and fires this ball a little bit high but still very catchable Yep, no doubt about it. All right, quick takeaways from the sixth series, and then we're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna tail off. You can wrap up with those garbage time series if you thought you saw anything there. Six series to me. What I noticed is more of the same with Nate Solder, bully back into the quarterback on a rep. Really bad game overall for Solder. We'll get to this at the end, but my key takeaway with Solder is he's cooked. He's washed. Um, I don't see any redeemable thing from him in this start. He's not doing what he used to do in 2018 in the run game. When at, in the first half he was actually an excellent run blocker. He, he doesn't have the bend he used to have. I don't know what's going on with his hand placement on a lot of these plays. The core strength or just kind of the ability to kind of hold up on a bull rush isn't there. I don't know. Didn't love it. I thought the six series at 20 to seven at this point after the fumble and then the Broncos drove down, killed some clock, kicked the field goal. The worst series by far by Jason Garrett. Just an absolutely atrocious series by him. First of all, he ran the ball twice on first down here despite being down 20 to seven, despite finding no success at all in the run game all game, and despite finding success on the flip side by, in the first half, passing on your first downs. Just mind-boggly bad by him. Then runs that awful rip route well short of the sticks. The Denver number 21, he just doesn't bite at all on this whip route. I mean, it's a pathetic play call. It's a lot of what we saw last year, him resorting to that whip route. Terrible play call. Didn't work at all. Can't use it when these corners are biting on all these stick routes and all this bullshit, this, this crap. Obviously, we're nice design QB draw after that to bail him out, but 
ultimately you don't want to put yourself in that position. Finally, the red zone series, just a lot of bad from the Giants here. The second down run call to Barkley that just has no chance of working. You need to take a shot in the end zone there. You just can't run that play. And if you are, design it to go back into the inside. I thought even in this play, Nick, and I'm curious what you thought, Barkley again made a poor decision here bouncing to the outside. Should have planted his foot. Should have cut it back inside. You know, for such a big, powerful runner, Nick, I would like to see from Barkley in general more often. This dates back all the way to 2018 cutting it back inside, getting vertical a little faster and a little more often. And then, obviously, the worst play of the game by far from Jones, that wheel route to Barkley in the red zone. I mean, he throws that thing in a triple coverage. Lucky it's not intercepted. I have no idea what Jones is seeing here post-nap. My only explanation of this, and you can go back and correct any of this, is that I think he's just simply going with what he thought he had pre-snap and just not even thinking about it, hitting his back foot and just ripping that ball out there. There are three Broncos defenders and one Barkley and no one else in the vicinity. Absolutely. And this is kind of what we were talking about. Excuse me. On the last podcast, if you watch Sterling Shepard and Kenny Galladay to the field side, the opposite side of where the wheel route went, their routes are just lazy. It's like they they knew the ball wasn't going to come to them. Like Sterling Shepard just kind of trots out into the flat, turns around. Kenny Galladay doesn't even really run a route. He just kind of runs into the end zone. And I'm not questioning their effort, but I feel like, Daniel Jones is told here, like, hey, this this wheel route should be open, and if that's not, find one of the two crossers in Kyle Rudolph or Darius Slayton. And he had Darius Slayton, to be honest. Darius Slayton, I mean, the uh, one linebacker kind of tries to wall off Kyle Rudolph a little bit. He hits him, and that opens up Darius Slayton. That could have been a touchdown, but instead, for whatever reason, man, Daniel Jones, you know, I don't I, even looking at the pre-snap look. I mean, I think the the play design, because you had Darius Slayton in a reduced split about two yards inside the numbers. I think he was, he, his intention was to chip Josie Jewell here. But Josie Jewell, bro, did such a good job working over the top of that chip, that rub, and then getting to the outside of Saquon Barkley. And the safety never budged. Like, nobody ever bit on any of these underneath routes to uh, Rudolph or Slayton other than that one linebacker. So like you said, there's three defenders there. Jones can't throw that football, man. That's a terrible read. But again, I think he may be told like, hey, this, this, you know, obviously this is your primary read. I mean, Jason Garrett's not like forced the football in here. So honestly, Jones has to look in the mirror here and he has to realize, hey, if it's not there, it's not there. Get off of it. Get off of it. And he just did because this is something that we've seen within Jason Garrett's offense. Didn't see it that much with Pat Shermer. Yeah, he locked on to number one reads, but looking at those backside receivers, they it's like they didn't even expect the football to ever be thrown in their direction. And that just makes me go, hmm, it's a little, little odd there. And it's a hapless series. I mean, it results in the final play that I mentioned earlier. I thought was slow processing by Jones. He needs to snap back and get that ball out there to Galladay faster. But it's a hapless series from Garrett. I mean, why not run zone read here, right? Why not get into the gun and run zone read? Let Jones keep it. Let him read the backer or hand it to Barkley. If you're going to run that run play they ran on second now, why not come that come out of the zone read? Why not have a little RPO? Do something within the red zone. A shot to the tight end up the seam anything different than what they ran. <laughs> it was just so bad to watch on all 22. Just a really bad red zone series, not just execution-wise by Jones in my mind, but also play-calling-wise by Garrett. Really, sometimes that is worse in my mind in the red zone, Garrett. It wasn't great, and uh want to correct ourselves just from the, uh, the previous podcast. There was, I think, like two or three zone read attempts, but Daniel Jones never talked to me. You could tell he's kind of reading the defender. He just handed it off every time, and there was one RPO, that there was one RPA, yeah. 
There was one RPO. You could tell by the run blocking. And it, I think it was the throw to Darius Slayton in the flat that yeah. uh, kind of died a little bit. Yeah, that ball that died down. That's the exact play. Um, so they ran a one RPO and a couple zone read. But, I mean, it should be a bigger part of their game. But I think we both agree with that. Um, we'll see if yeah. that happens going forward. Let's get to some superlatives here. Based on the all 22 coaches film, Nick, give me your unheralded player of the week. You can add an explanation or just rip off the name. It's Nick Gates. Nick Gates, I mean, there was like one or two uh, blocks where he slid off a little bit. But other than that, man, he fit his hands so well. He got his hands into the chest of the defenders, controlled, held on really, really tight, elbows tight, was driving through, was finishing blocks, was looking for work, was not a liability in pass protection, and also was one of the better run blockers on the offensive line. For me, it's definitely Nick Gates. Yeah, Nick Gates is really the only realistic one here in a game like this where the offense was so not on the field for long and so many players didn't play well, with the exception of obviously like obvious ones, which we'll get to, that aren't considered unheralded. I think a sneaky unheralded could be just Kenny Galladay because he hasn't been talked about much for having a good game, but the contested catches he made were peak of what the reason you pay him the money you paid him is to make plays like he made on those contested catches. One that you mentioned should have been intercepted, a bad throw by Jones. The other one just crazy catch as well just Ridiculous. really good stuff from Galladay there I think uh, Andrew Thomas can make the list just because the last time we saw him he was abysmal and this time he was solid you know I, I feel like there were some times where it wasn't great and it looked really sloppy but I would say overall he had a solid game yeah I wasn't considering him unheralded just because he's had so much uh, pop this week so much press um, I agree with your take though solid not as spectacular as some have kind of made it out to seem but definitely yeah. solid fine game what you want to see the only really bad rep is the one i mentioned the ball that kind of died out to uh or not the ball that died out the one where jones kind of comes back to slayton on the field side um do you know the one i'm talking about are you talking about oh yes yeah it was kind of overset on that one yeah, he got overset and he got beaten inside and his, his footwork was just absolute uh, abysmal. I wish we had timestamps on this, ladies and gentlemen. We apologize. Yeah, no timestamps, but game, that was the only like egregious rep. So I thought he definitely was solid. He can fit in this or just in a good game for the week. Um, let's go throw the week. So I think the obvious throw would be the would be the um the toss to Darius Slate in the forty two yarder. But I want to go a little bit different. And this play was. I don't. I'm not sure if it was a third down situation again. I apologize for uh, we, since we don't have that. But this is a. Um, it was a no. It was a first down shotgun throw. It was a comeback to Darius Slayton. I really like this play. I believe it was in the third quarter, if I'm not mistaken. He he sets up. It's a play action, and you could tell he he looks first to his left. The throw is to his right at the safety. Sees this right safety, the field side safety, dip down to try to rob an in-breaking route that doesn't happen because they're basically running verts with the two middle receivers and then two cur deep curls. And I love how Jones sets in the pocket. This was actually a play where Andrew Thomas also did not have a good rep. He sets in the pocket, flips his hips, resets his feet, and fires a ball from the middle of the field to the outside shoulder of Darius Slayton. Now, obviously, it's not as good as, of a throw as the as the big play, but I think his maneuvering of the pocket, his ability to reset his feet, get his hips oriented, and then lock onto the target and deliver an accurate pass with a lot of velocity, I think it definitely deserves to be mentioned. Yeah, I think you're right. That was another great throw. Best individual route run. 
there, I, I think you have a good one here, so I'm just going to let you go with yours. I don't have I, there. I didn't have anything that stood out to me really besides the one you mentioned. Yeah, this is the play I went over before. It was the deep dig on third down to Sterling Shepard where he angles outside and then cuts on his inside foot to round off a route and makes a catch in between the safety and the cornerback. So we already detailed that one pretty extensively. And just to kind of reiterate, though, I mean, listen, steady drumbeat. Healthy Sterling Shepard is arguably the best route runner on this roster. I think he is the best route runner on this roster. I mean, as I've said before, that 2018 season when he's come back from injury, according to Turchin on the tape, and I think he makes a good case for it. It's hard to argue against Odell Beckham, but he thought Shepard was running better routes than Beckham. Shepard does a really good job with his route running. It's not like some crazy thing to say that either, because part of why people are so excited about the Giants drafting him in that early second round range is that they thought he could be like a unique Antonio Brown, like in and out of breaks type route runner. And when healthy, he keeps producing. So big fan of what we saw from Shepard this game. Really hope that he could stay healthy. Uh, Play call of the week for you from Jason Garrett. Play call for me. uh, I'm going to go with the fast Kadarius Tony play that we broke down before. I really like that implementation of a player like Kadarius Tony. That's what we wanted the Giants to do when they selected Kadarius Tony in the first round. And I think, as you said, it could be an extension of the run to keep defenses honest. So just that simple play design that picked up four or five yards, that's that's where I'm going to go with Jason Garrett right now. But I think there are other ones that were also solid, but overall that philosophy is still the same. Yep. And then give me the TD to Shep. Just simple. It's not too crazy. Vertical base routes, vertical base route combinations, but just do it, man. Just run it. Great route, great route combo. I mean, listen, you even have Slayton in motion on this to create more uh, stress on the safeties as he runs that vertical and then creates that little space needed for Shepard to run that deep over into that exact space because Slayton's motioning into that space. And so it's just like, it's not that hard. Just do it more often, Garrett. It's simple as that. All right, give me an overall grade for the pass blocking. For the pass blocking, I'm going to go with a 6, I think. I, I debated between a 5.5 and a 6, so maybe I should have split the difference at a 5.75. Is that something that we're doing on this podcast, Dan? I'm a, this is a big pro-decimal podcast. I, I appreciate that. I know we've gone back and forth, so maybe a 5.75. I, I think they, they did better than what we maybe anticipated. That could be in part because Bradley Chubb was not available in this game. I think he would have gave Andrew Thomas more fits than Malik Reed. But I feel like there were some clean pockets. There were some breakdowns and protection. They still need to do a better job handling stunts. And that's why it hovers around a 5.75 instead of a 7 or 8. Yeah, I think this is like a rare occasion where I might have a higher grade than you. But looking back on this, I'm more, or at least it, fe- it feels like that. Um, maybe I'm just a little too pessimistic at times, but I don't think that's the case. But whatever. I have a 6-5, but looking back, I think I might be overrating that a bit. I feel like Andrew Thomas played really well, with the exception of a couple reps at most. I feel like Gates played really well. But maybe I'm overrating the overall grade because Bredesen wasn't great. Lemieux wasn't great in limited reps. Hernandez was kind of like in the 6 range, though, for me, like the 6-6-5 range. He did have a little bit more good than bad, but then like that right tackle situation was just an abject disaster. Solder, paired. Even more so Solder, in my mind, was even worse. We'll get to that in a moment. I have a couple questions that I'll break down with you, but I'll give it a 6-5. Give me a run blocking grade. Run blocking grade is a 4 for me. I I feel like there were some holes that could have been hit, uh, probably would have uh, made the rushing attempt 
numbers in terms of yardage and rushing attempts go up significantly. It was pretty atrocious. It wasn't great, but I do believe Saquon Barkley probably left a couple yards on the field. I think Devontae Booker left a couple yards on the field because the guy just keeps slipping over his own feet. Uh, for, uh, to me, it's a little bit of a glass half full ranking uh, for me, but uh, that's where I'm going to go right now. I'm on 2.5 for the run blocking. There's just too many plays where like it was designed to go to a spot and <laughs> they're blocking it. They have a hat on a hat and yet there's just no hole. Like there's literally just no hole. And I just like haven't seen that from the Giants run game under Garrett really at any point last year. There were no games I felt like that were this egregious from that standpoint. Just general, genuinely no hole whatsoever. Okay, give me an offensive player based on the All-22 film who in your mind struggled. I'm going to go with, uh, he didn't struggle extensively, but I'm going to say Darius Slayton. I just feel like there was probably three contested catch situations where it would have been a tough catch, yes, but professional football players make tough catches and he didn't come up with it. And Daniel Jones may not have put the best ball on him, but you still expect your NFL wide receiver to catch it if he gets his hands on it. And he just didn't. And that's something that I feel like uh, the inefficiency of Darius Slayton is starting to piss me off a little bit. So I'm, I'm hoping that he can clean that up. I think he can clean that up, but he's my player that I'm going to mention. I think there's plenty on the offensive line we could probably bring up though. <laughs> I mean, listen, ultimately, like I said, if it gets to the point where the Giants are running a peak offense, Slayton doesn't play much. Tony gets those reps. Like, that needs to happen sooner than later. Tony can get those reps. We even saw this week, Shepard played a lot more outside. It wasn't just Shepard exclusively in the slot. Shepard played outside some. So you can keep Shepard outside. You can move Tony in the slot. Ultimately, that's peak offense for me. All right. For, oh, for me, player who struggled, no surprise here, Kyle Rudolph. Just didn't like what I saw from him in the blocking game at all. <laughs> in the receiving game, there just wasn't anything there either. I honestly think this is just a guy who's just not ready right now being forced to play because of the tight end situation because he didn't practice much in training camp, barely played at all after that, um, you know, kind of still working his way into it. And we have a lot of data that shows players coming off Liz Frank take a full year to really recover and get back. And for an older veteran like him who has a lot of tread on his tire, that may be even a bigger hurdle to overcome. Really questionable signing, reeking at this point of Jonathan Stewart. Not going to be that bad, though. It's a joke. It's obviously not going to be that bad. But Jonathan's it's reeking of a sim. Uh, it's it's very Gettleman. Like, when anyone says, Gettleman's learned, Gettleman's changed, now it's all judge-making moves. No, it's not. Because Gettleman still makes these jam moves. When he needs to jam a position, that he feels like he needs to improve right away. He felt like he needed to get Garrett, that Y-stick type tight end, that inline guy. Jammed it. He jammed it. There was nothing really on the market. He wanted Hunter Henry, got priced out of that market, jammed Rudolph through. Jammed Dory Jackson, jammed Daniel Jones when he needed a franchise quarterback, jammed Barkley, jammed Sam Beal. He's a jam GM. He falls in love. Not only does he fall in love with players, he tries to jam needs. It's true. I mean, it simply I'm, is. I'm not... I don't really hate the Kyle Rudolph signing too much. Like, I don't think the money allocation is really too bad. I mean, I look at the week one performance and I'm like, geez, like could be eating my words in a few weeks. But I mean, at the time, I really didn't hate that signing. And I still don't be given the given the tight end position right now. But I think you're right. He may be being forced to play because of. Evan Ingram's injury and just the natural state of this offense, even though they ran a lot of 11 personnel. I mean, if Kyle Rudolph is going to struggle, man, and they want to trot out 11 personnel without Evan Ingram, give Caden Smith a shot, bro. 
So that's the whole thing. Like, I think I was with you when they made the signing of Rudolph. I didn't hate it at the time, but I hated it more and more as we go forward. And as I look to next year, where the Giants have at this point, and this is shout out to Giants fan in Charlotte. Somehow I got go. this one right. I finally nailed it. And by the way, Giants fan in Charlotte. Now that we're boys and we're talking a lot on Twitter, back and forth, gave you a couple shout outs. I got to know your name because I don't know your name. And I feel like I'd rather shout you out by name or, you know, maybe you do prefer the shout out of the Twitter handle because then you'll get more followers. I don't really know. That's up to you, though, my man. But he said or he let me know the Giants are actually this is such an insane stat, Nick. The Giants have two point five million in 2022 cash days because they dip so far into the future. And yes, that doesn't mean that's what it's going to be like. They're going to have to dip again. They're going to dip again into 2023. And in general, I am a big fan of dipping into future cap years. You know that. I've said that consistently on this podcast. I mean, listen, the Saints just re-signed Marshawn Lattimore. That was unbelievable to me. I mean, the, the Saints were supposed to be 80 million over the cap going into this past offseason. The Eagles are similar in that way. But regardless, current spending right now, according to Giants fan in, in, in God, Charlotte, I'm going to say Connecticut every time somehow, but Giants fan in Charlotte, the Giants are spending up to f- the four teams that are Super Bowl contenders, the Rams, the Bucks, the Chiefs, and the Bills. Like the Giants are spending up to, the, they have spent as much as those five teams through that next year where they're only have 2.5 million caps. I mean, that's when I'm going to start to worry maybe about this Rudolph deal next year when he has a cap hit that has some guaranteed money on. They can't get off of it. And by that point, my hot take that I was about to get to, Nick, which is I'd rather have Caden Smith on the field than Kyle Rudolph in 11 personnel at this point. If that's the case, and I feel that way again next year, it's going to look even worse that they have that contract on the books. Yes, that will look bad. I'm hoping that he starts showing a little bit more. I mean, it was was nuts just how – I don't want to say hapless this team was because I don't believe it was necessarily uh, a lack of effort. I just think they were just outclassed and outplayed and outcoached by a, a Denver team that seemed a lot hungrier. But I, I'm, I think the Giants are going to come out hungry uh, against Washington. I know you, you've said that as well. So I'm hoping Thursday's a little bit different. I, I don't expect much from the offense, but I'm sure we'll talk about that probably uh, leading to Thursday night football. For sure. And I also, we feel pretty, considering what they put on film, it's crazy that me and you are this confident, but I really feel good about the Giants winning this game. It's not going to be easy. The Giants are not going to blow out the Washington football team. But I just feel like they're going to win this game. They're lucky. <laughs> yeah. I actually, yeah, I think, they, I think they'll win this game, though. I really do. And, and listen, it's not like some, if they win this game, like, I really hope we don't see victory laps from the Gettleman stands because, dear God, they're playing Taylor Heineke, a 27-year-old, a 28-year-old journeyman undrafted journeyman like they should win this football game they're all the money they've invested in this team dipping into future cap years all the draft capital no gm in the history in not the history in the entire league has had more draft capital in his four past four years than dave gettleman not only has he had incredible draft picks draft capital from the standpoint of where he's picking and as you look at the trade uh you know the draft trade chart you see the second pick's worth a lot more than the 10th pick and so on and so forth he also had extra picks from the beckham trade so i mean like this roster should be really good at this point. Let's be completely honest about that. But feel good about it. They're going to beat the, the, the Washington football team. Let's do some couple hot takes and then close out here. A couple more hot takes from the film. I'm done with Solder, man. I think he's washed. I really don't feel like there's anything to gain at this point from having on the field. Yeah, Pert had a really bad rep, mental rep, where he didn't get all, he didn't get out into his stance in time, and Von Miller blew by him. But Solder's not offering much at all in the past game for me. 
nothing in the run game anymore. Doesn't have bend. Doesn't look like he's really in the shape of an offensive tackle. Maybe that improves as he gets the reps back, but I think he could be cooked. I'd rather have paired on the field starting next week for 100% of the snaps. He'll have some growing pains, but at least you have the upside of him getting more reps and improving by more reps. You don't have any upside anymore in my mind with Solder. Plus, Washington Matt Paired is a different Matt Paired. Remember when he came, remember when oh, he yeah, came he was, out? Week he six? was good in that game. You're right. Especially in the run game. Yeah, yeah. It was by far his best game. But, uh, yeah, no, I don't necessarily have too many hot takes. Do you have – Or even a, just takeaways. Have, you know, you can even just – any kind of takeaway we missed on the from what we've said. Takeaways, I mean, there there wasn't a lot um, of deviation from the 2020 offense. Even with these new weapons, it was still a lot of the same stuff. Just like we said on the last podcast, to be honest, I'm hoping we see a little bit more Kadarius Tony. And I guess if I had to get in a hot take, you already kind of uh, spoiled it a little bit before. But if Darius Slayton continues to be inefficient, then Kadarius Tony needs to get on the field a little bit quicker. That will probably happen, though. But obviously, it's not going to happen now or maybe anytime soon because the kid missed basically all the training camp and he's getting up to speed. So I guess that's something I, I can add in there. Other than that, I mean, I wish Ben Bredesen was a little bit more effective. I don't think he was terrible, but he definitely didn't catch our eyes. I mean, at least my eyes. Yeah. My other takeaway would be just I'm, I'm more worried about the offensive line than I thought I would be. Left guard situation I'm worried about. Right guard situation was just not what I was hoping it would be. I, would ho- I was hoping Hernandez might be the best player on this offense line this year. I no longer feel that way. Thomas I felt good about, but... Left guard, right guard, right tackle to me right now look like they could all be liabilities for the entire duration of the season. And it's just so hard to win in the NFL when three of your five offensive line spots are liabilities. And I'm hoping that changes. It's not always going to look this bad. They're going to get that Falcons front soon. Can't wait for that Falcons matchup. I really think the offense can open up in that Falcons game. I actually wish that was in Atlanta for the dome factor. I think they could be a little faster on that turf, but in the dome, but. Again, man, like this is year four. Gettleman's first goal was fix the offensive line. This can't be, this just can't be it, man. And I'll be honest, Nick, it does pain me to see all the breakdowns this week from Ben, uh, from Brian, why is his first name? From Baldy, is Brian Balding, all right? Yep. Daniel Jeremiah, a few other guys I trust that break down film on offensive linemen of just how dominant Rashawn Slater was in his first start against Chase Young. And this isn't too much of a surprise. It shouldn't be. The steady drumbeat has been there. I mean, he was great in camp against Bosa, day in and day out. Great in the preseason, unlimited reps. Great in college. You loved his film, Nick. I liked his film, too. I just felt like I didn't even need to see his film because of the way that he moved and his feet and the upside. And yet this guy didn't play football at all in 2020 and is able to come in the NFL in week one. They're taking a year off and handle Chase Young that way and then be that asset in the run game. Because listen, Nick, there's a perfect world here where the Giants are patient in 2019. They don't jam a quarterback in a draft that didn't have one besides Kyler Murray. They take Allen. They're bad again because they weren't going to win games even if they took Josh Allen instead of Daniel Jones. They take Justin Herbert, and they're probably bad again because Herbert didn't win many games last year. Let's be honest. And then they have Slater. Or there's a world where none of that happens, but DG picks the right lineman, and he has Werfs and Slater as his left tackle and his right tackle for the next decade. 
And we talk all along about like fixing this offensive line and having a great offensive line. What's more important than that? We think almost nothing but the quarterback. And so they've been in the wheelhouse. I, I, I'm. It's not that I'm rooting against Slater at this point, but I hope he doesn't become the the worst of this year. I really. I, I don't know if I can handle it, Nick, if he's the worst of this year. And and the Giants end up losing, firing Gettleman, and we could have had Werfs at right tackle and Slater at left tackle for the next decade plus. I, I, I can't, my heart can't handle it. That's my that's my final takeaway. Please, Rashawn Slater, regress a little bit. Don't have a Werfs-like rookie season, but I, I actually don't hope that for you. Yeah, just suck, Rashawn Slater. No, you know what you need to do, Dan? You need to pull a Rick Sanchez and develop an interdimensional travel and get to that universe where the Giants have Justin Herbert, Tristan Wirfs, and Rashawn Slater. That's what you need to do. Well, they couldn't have Wirfs and Herbert. It was one of the two there in that spot. But because that, that was the same class, obviously. But even if it was just like any combination of those three, it's, they were all in the wheelhouse for Gettleman. It's not like this is like some made up situation where he would have had to trade O'Head. It's literally just evals. I mean, it's just pure evals. He evaled, evaluated Parrot to be somebody they wanted to move forward with. And so he didn't want to take a tackle in round one of this draft. The last draft, he thought Thomas was better than Werfs. Like, these are just things that he decided. This is his job. He's the final call there. He's supposed to be the offensive line guru. That was what he promised. Not only what he promised, that's what he's supposed to be get, getting from this guy. I mean, it, it's just, I, I really hope the Giants don't have a liability at three of the five line spots. I'll bring it back to that. Yes, I mean that would just be absolutely abysmal for another for an extra game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. The Washington front's going to be tough, but we'll see what happens there. All right, we're going to wrap up there. We know you have a lot of questions that you've been putting on the iTunes. Like we said, please, 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 please. This is a free podcast. We ask for one thing to help us: help us move up that iTunes algorithm. That's all we ask. Then we can grow. Then we can do more. So if you haven't already. Please head over to iTunes, subscribe. Please head over to Spotify, follow. If you can leave reviews and ratings these days on I, on Spotify, do that. But if not, and you're an Apple user, please, if you haven't done this already, go to our iTunes, scroll to the bottom of our page, click rating and review, click five stars, and then write something in. If you write a question in there, we will answer. We know we're backed up a little bit on questions. We promise we'll answer them. We're probably going to have to do them on a mailbag pod. There's not enough time. It's all 22 pods, but please. Follow us there. Follow us on Instagram, NYBigBlueBanter, YouTube, BigBlueBanter. We'll talk to you soon. The defense of all 22 breakdowns coming next. Have a great rest of your week. Go Giants. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.